I, I love real-life stories, uh, autobiographies, history, uh, any sort of documentary uh, fascinates me. Uh, and that includes real-life stories that even have a slightly morbid uh, turn to them. Uh, for instance, uh, documentaries on airplane crashes. And I realize that's a little strange, um, but I've watched numerous investigation videos because the whole concept of uh, what happens in an airplane crash fascinates me. Um, I've listened to cockpit recordings um, of what happens uh, in the cockpit. I've, I've listened to air traffic controller info um, that you can, you can find all this stuff online. Um, and it fascinates me to hear these stories. Um, I think probably the worst um, that, that it got um, was, was last year uh, before I went to Uganda. And um, I had been watching a variety of these videos. And uh, my wife, Kathy, said, I, like, I understand that you enjoy watching these. But seriously, you're really going to watch these before you get on a plane for about 28 hours. Like, now's when you pick to watch a bunch of videos about airplane crashes. Um, but it was. Uh, so I've, I've been planning to preach for a couple weeks now, and I already had uh, kind of this introduction planned out. And so I was shocked uh, the last time Scott preached, that was two weeks ago, to hear him start um, with an airplane story. If you were here two weeks ago, uh, you heard that. Um, and the further he got into his introduction about this airplane crash, I knew exactly what was going to happen because that's just another story that I had read about and, and um, had heard information about. So I knew that that plane was going down and it was going to be bad news. Um, but I, I realize this is going to be two kind of bad weeks for, for airplane press, um, but it still it fits so well that I thought I can't leave my introduction just because uh, Scott took it uh, two weeks ago. Um, this is a different story, though. Um, so for all of you who have a fear of flying, I'm sorry. Um, it really is safer than driving a car, they say. Um, but uh, in, in 2014, uh, there was a, a Learjet uh, that crashed, uh, and tragically it killed all nine people on board in the Grand Bahama. Uh, and and it, as, they, as they began to research what happened in this crash, they began to look into it. Um, they began to notice um, some really uh, strange features of this particular crash. Uh, you see, modern-day airplanes uh, are equipped with something that's called a terrain awareness warning system, um, which is really handy um, because what goes up must come down. And when you're getting closer to the ground, see, it's, it's, uh, it's not flying that that kills anybody, right? It's the, it's the crashing at the end, right? So you want to know if you're getting near to the ground. Uh, and so planes now have these warning systems that alert pilots that they're too close to, to the ground. Uh, and, and so as they research, why does this modern Learjet, why um, did it crash into the ground during controlled flight? They hadn't lost control. Um, why, why did it crash into the ground? And what they discovered uh, was that this terrain awareness warning system was completely ignored by the pilots. In fact, tragically, the cockpit recorder records one of the pilots saying, ah, shut up, to the terrain awareness warning system moments before the crash. Because you see, the warning system has a blinking light that flashes to tell the pilots you're too low, and there's also a voice that comes in the cockpit that says in a robotic voice, you know, warning, pull up. Warning, low terrain. And so you can hear the pilot actually say, ah, shut up, to his computer voice telling him that he's too low. How, how could that happen? How could, how could a pilot do that? How could he risk and end up costing the lives of these nine people um, that, that were on his plane? Well, studies have actually shown, um, despite the fact that these features are on all modern planes, pilots routinely ignore 
the low-terrain warnings, or they prioritize other things in flight besides the low-terrain warning. They pay attention to other things. They're more concerned about what else is going on with their emergency or what else happening in the plane than what is most important, which is keeping the plane up off the ground. Now, imagine with me that pilots everywhere um, got together and had a conference. And they wrote some extensive papers that were very smart-sounding. And they pronounced that the best way to deal with this annoying beeping and these flashing lights and this voice in the cockpit was to just go ahead and eliminate that voice. Uh, Just go ahead and cover up that light with duct tape, uh, muffle that loud beeping, uh, and everything will be fine. And obviously, that would be incredibly foolish, and and that would never happen. Um, But the, the connection to our passage today is that I think it's possible for us to dismiss a warning system that God has given to us. And that warning system, we often refer to as guilt. I want to preach to you a message this morning about the goodness of guilt from 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 11. Guilt is not an enjoyable feeling. It can be loud, and it can be annoying. And at times, we wish we could completely ignore it but we disregard guilt at the expense of our own spiritual health. Guilt has become, for some people in our society, a really bad word. Uh, For many, guilt is something that you should break free from. You should escape guilt. You should minimize guilt, or you should get past your guilt. But I think a biblical concept of guilt will teach us that guilt in itself is not a bad thing. Instead, we need to let today's passage teach us to let guilt drive you away from sin and to Christ. And so that's our main point today. Let guilt drive you away from sin and to Christ. It's like that low-terrain warning that's going off saying there's danger and you'd better pay attention. And the right response, just like a pilot ought to pull up and get that plane away from the low ground, the right response to the guilt that we feel is that we should drive away from sin and to Christ. So four main points uh, to see in our passage today. Guilt is good because godly grief brings comfort to those who love us. Secondly, guilt is good because godly grief brings repentance. Thirdly, guilt is good because godly grief brings salvation instead of death. And lastly today, guilt is good because godly grief brings the fruit of repentance. Let's look again at the words specifically that we're going to be studying today, even as Dom had already read them. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse number 5, Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. I know we're just jumping into this passage. Um, It happens when uh, I preach, and I just preach a standalone uh, message. Um, But to kind of hurry up and get you caught up to where we are uh, in in 2 Corinthians, to give you a little bit of of the background, um, 
Paul has made three personal visits, and he'll end up writing four letters over a seven-year span to this Corinthian church. Uh, It started when he planted the church in Corinth as his um, first personal visit. Uh, He then wrote them a letter, a first letter that is actually not preserved. Uh, And then he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, which we do have in our New Testaments. Uh, His letter of 1 Corinthians was followed by a very painful visit, um, which was trying to remedy some ongoing spiritual issues in Corinth. Um, that painful visit led to Paul being attacked and insulted by his opponents. Uh, And so then Paul sends another letter, which we also do not have in our New Testaments, that he refers to as a severe letter. And in this severe letter, Paul calls for punishment of the wrongdoer. Um, He also calls them to continue um, the collection for the saints in Jerusalem because they had stopped giving to the other saints. Um, And Paul decided when he wrote that letter that he didn't want to come and make another painful visit. That painful visit must have been so hard that he said, I'm going to write you a letter. I'm not even going to come to you. So what happens uh, where we are now in 2 Corinthians 7 is that Titus actually has caught back up with Paul and he's brought him a report of the response of the Corinthians to this severe letter. All right, so that's kind of where we are um, in the book of Corinthians. Uh, I think the Corinthian church is equal parts disheartening as well as encouraging if you know much about the Corinthian church. It's disheartening because I think all of us hope for better from Christians and from the church than what was happening at the church in Corinth. Uh, And we hope better for ourselves, right? The church of Corinth was marked by fighting instead of using their spiritual gifts for one another. They were allowing gross immorality to go unchecked. They were even questioning Paul's apostolic authority. Paul was the one who was bringing them revelation from God, and they were questioning whether they should even listen to him. The church of Corinth had deep, abiding, troubling issues. And so it's disheartening to see that in a Christian church. But it's also encouraging to us because God doesn't leave his people in sin. But instead, he leads them to repentance. God doesn't abandon the Corinthian church and say, you're you're too horrible, I'm going to get rid of you. Instead, he disciplines and he trains and he grows them. And I think that's encouraging for you and it's encouraging for me because the reality is that we are Corinth. We are Corinth for which we should be humbled and we should be happy at the exact same time. This church is marked by a whole variety of problems, a whole variety of sin, and yet God is at work in them. And you can see that because one of the things they continue to experience is the sense of sadness, this this experience of feeling bad for the sinful things that they are doing. When When I say guilt, you probably don't need me to give you a dictionary definition of what that means. Uh, Guilt is this bad feeling caused by knowing or thinking that you have done something bad or wrong. Um, That's that's Merriam-Webster. But I'm sure you all can relate to the feeling of guilt. Um, I was uh, talking uh, with Shay earlier this week, and uh, I was talking through my message, and I said, what comes to your mind when I say guilt? Like, what what do you think? And and his response was not a word. His response was, ugh. Right? You know what guilt is. You know that sense, that just like that sinking in the pit of your stomach. Oh, man. Right? I'm not talking about some kind of weird psychological understanding. You, you know, the, you know the, the feeling when you've yelled those hateful words at your kids and your heart just sinks. I can't believe I just did that. You, you know that sense of guilt when you cheated on that test last week. Or when you betrayed a friend or you went too far with your girlfriend or whatever it is that you have done that is sinful, even in this last week, you know what it feels like in your gut to feel guilty. Perhaps you know the feeling of guilt almost constantly. It plagues your every day. 
Or maybe guilt comes to you intensely when it does. Or maybe you feel almost no guilt whatsoever anytime. I think a right understanding, and even what we'll see in this passage, is that guilt is intended to be a feeling we experience when we disobey God. Guilt should direct us to change our behavior. And the main point of this message is it should drive us away from sin and to Christ. Uh, Guilt is not any more bad than the feeling of pain is. If you reach out and you touch a hot stove, there are going to be pain sensors in your hand. They're going to tell you, move your hand. And we don't say, oh, I sure wish I didn't feel pain. Life would be a lot better, right? But we can be tempted to think, I sure wish I didn't feel guilt. That's not a fun feeling. I wish I didn't have that sensation. But just like pain teaches you, move your hand off the hot stove, guilt should teach us, I need to turn away from my sin, and I need to turn to Christ. And so uh, we see in this passage, really through uh, the story of the Corinthians, through their example, because we, we don't have a lot of commands in this passage, we have examples And we see examples that teach us that guilt is good because godly grief brings comfort to those who love us. That's the first main point you can see in verses 5 through 8. Because Paul's telling his story of how he came to Macedonia and he had no rest. In fact, he says, we were afflicted at every turn. Paul is describing another moment in his ministry that he he has felt alone and abandoned. Uh, He was really hoping to meet up with Titus earlier in this missionary journey and even earlier in Macedonia. And for whatever reason, Titus couldn't make it. And so Paul got to Macedonia feeling completely beat down, feeling uh, alone. and, And it says he was fighting without and fear within. Do you see the state of the Apostle Paul? Um, He says, there's people fighting without. There's all this pressure coming to me from the outside and internally have the struggle of fear. Okay? Is that how you think of the Apostle Paul? You you think about him. Do you think about Paul as a real live person? Somebody who it actually affected him that people wanted to like kill him at every city he went to. Right? Uh, It affected him that many times he was alone, whether he was in a prison cell or maybe he was preaching and everyone else who was listening to him, the Jewish people that he went to first in the synagogues, they wanted to get rid of him. And then when he left the synagogue and he started preaching to the Gentile people, they said things like, Paul, you're mad. What is this talk about a resurrection from the dead, right? Paul was alone physically and spiritually so many times, and that had an effect on him. But, he says, God comforts the downcast. This is a really amazing um, window into the life of Paul, right? Paul's describing himself at this point as one of the downcast, right? That's the state that he's in. He's downcast. And so he needs comfort, and where does that comfort come from in this situation? Well, ultimately, God is the one who comforts, but how did God comfort Paul in this state in his life where he feels alone and his body has no rest and he's, he's afflicted and people are fighting him without and he's fearful within? Well, God comforts him, but he does it by the coming of Titus in verse number 6. He comforted us by the coming of Titus, but it wasn't just that Titus came and he now had the companionship and camaraderie of Titus. Titus brought him news from the church at Corinth. He says in verse 7, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So the Corinthians ministered to Titus, and they did that by turning away from their sin and, and repenting from all the things that Paul had listed in his letter that they needed to repent from. And Titus was encouraged by that. And so Titus takes that encouragement, he gets to Paul, and he turns that same encouragement to Paul. And now Paul is encouraged that the Corinthians had turned away from their sin. You see, the reality is that that godly grief brings comfort to the people who love us best. He says, he brought news of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced 
still more. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. All right, what's, what's going on here? There's all this regret, not regret. I do, but I don't regret. What, what is going on? He, Paul says, I made you grieve with my letter. What letter? It's what I explained earlier. It's that severe letter that he wrote to them, really confronting and rebuking, um, rebuking them. And he says, um, even if I did make you grieve with that letter, I, I don't regret it. I, I'm not sorry about that. Um, if you wanted to use the word guilt here, I don't feel any guilt that I gave you that letter. I, I don't feel bad. But he says, though I did regret it. All right? Which is it, Paul? Are you, are you sorry you wrote this letter or are you not sorry you wrote this letter? Right? How can you say both? Well, uh, if you're a parent, I think you well understand exactly what Paul is saying here. Right? Because any parent, uh, any, any godly parent knows um, that they are not sorry for bringing consequences on their children for their children's sinful actions. Right? You don't wring your hands and say, oh, man, I really shouldn't hold you accountable for hitting your brother or sister. I just, I feel so bad that I actually hold you, held you accountable. No, you don't regret it. You say, this is my job. This is my God-given responsibility. I love you. Therefore, I'm not going to regret giving out whatever consequences that looks like in your family. Right? But at the exact same time you say, I don't regret giving in these consequences, it still hurts you on the inside to say, I, I didn't, I didn't want to have to give this to you. I, I'm, I hate that you made these choices. So at the same time, parents don't regret giving discipline, while at the same time, they do. Okay? Um, thankfully, when I was a kid, my, my dad never gave me the, um, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you line. I don't know how many of you parents have said that to your kids, because as a kid, I just would not have believed it. I would, because my parents absolutely believed in the application of the board of knowledge to the seat of correction, right? And so um, I, I would not have believed if my dad would have said, this is going to hurt me worse than you, I would have said, it's not, it's not your rear end that's getting um, hit right now. I don't think this hurts you more than, right? Now I'm on the parent's side, and, and I get it. I get the fact that you don't want your children to sin, and you don't want to have to give out consequences, right? It's, it's not something that, that you enjoy. And if you do enjoy it, you have some kind of problem, right? Um, and so this is what Paul is saying here. I, I don't regret that I made you grieve, but, but I, I do regret it because I see that the letter grieved you, right? What, what helps Paul not grieve overly much is because he sees that it was only for a little while that they were grieved, Right? He sees that it was temporary, this, um, this guilt and, the, and this, what they went through um, as, as he was disciplining them. Uh, Paul has this incredible heart for the Corinthians. In fact, he says in, uh, at the very beginning of the book, in 2, verse number 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. All right? Paul is not angry at the Corinthians. He loves the Corinthians. And so he's caught between wanting them to turn and being okay with the fact that they now feel guilty and grieved and the fact that he wishes they didn't have to, okay? He didn't regret in one sense because the pain was temporary and God's intentions were done and they repented and the church wasn't harmed, but instead it was helped. And I say that because the reality is that a godly grief, a sense of guilt that leads to repentance, it brings comfort to the people who truly love you. If, parents, if you truly love your child, you will be comforted when they turn away from their foolishness and away from their sin, and they do what's right. You find comfort in that. And the same is true in the church of spiritual leaders or of spiritual friends. Listen, if you have a spiritual friend who doesn't want you to stay in your sin, you have a good friend. 
he or she is on your side. They're on your team, right? And they will, they will be comforted by your godly grief turning away from sin. They will be encouraged by that. And that's one of the reasons that guilt is good. Because guilt produces this sense of grief or of sadness. It actually brings comfort to the people who love us best. You can handle all sorts of heartache when the people you love turn towards Christ. And they turn away from sin. From a, from a salvation standpoint, man, I was so blessed and encouraged last week at baptism. Uh, hearing those testimonies, didn't your heart, it, for those of you that got to be there, didn't your heart just thrill at the stories of people turning away from sin and turning to Christ? Like there's something that just, it was encouraging. In that sense, it was comforting. It was motivating, right? From, from as young as teenagers to as old as 89, men and women from all kinds of different backgrounds, some with Christian homes and some with not Christian homes, saying, I got to the point where I realized I needed to turn away from my sin. And I needed to turn to Christ. And there is comfort and encouragement in those kind of testimonies. And that doesn't just stop at your conversion. As you continue to walk in light of the gospel, as you continue to turn away from sin and to Christ, that brings encouragement and comfort to the people who love you best. Our hearts love to hear stories of repentance. And so guilt is good because it brings comfort to those who love us. And the reality, beloved, is that even as I've thought about this message, um, I have not wanted to talk about guilt because it's such an enjoyable thing to talk about, Uh, but because I do love you, and actually there is a purpose for this that will bring comfort to all the people around you if you will understand what to do with the sensation of I have failed or I have sinned, and now what do I do? What you will do, what you ought to do with that guilt is turn away from your sin and then turn to Christ, and that action will bring comfort to everyone around you. It's the best-case scenario for you is to allow your guilt to drive you back to Christ. That's a comforting thing for the people that love you and care about you. That's not the only reason guilt is good, though. In verse number 9, we're going to see that guilt is good because godly grief brings repentance. All right, um, And all of this helps us understand why Paul was so um, uh, torn between, I feel bad, but I don't feel bad, because look what happened as, as, the, as the Corinthian church felt the sense of guilt and of sorrow. He says in verse number 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, Okay, understand Paul clearly. He's not some guy that's sitting back going, oh good, I'm glad you all feel so bad, right? There is no good pastor, there's no good uh, parent, there's no good friend that rejoices when the people around them are are just hurt and grieved, right? He he says, "I, I rejoice not because you are grieved, it's not your sadness, it's not your sense of guilt that makes me rejoice, but because you were grieved into repenting. You see that? Their guilt was good because they were grieved all the way into repenting, right? There's something that's better than not feeling grief, right? What Paul wanted for them was not just that they would never experience grief. That's not the best thing for them. And in reality is it's not the best thing for us. It's not the best thing for us that we just, that we say guilt is something to avoid or to hide from. We just never want to experience that emotion. No, the best thing is for this godly grief, for for the sense of I've done wrong and I feel bad about it, to lead us into repentance. It is good to repent. And repentance is better than never feeling bad about your choices. The, the word that's here for, for um, in, in verse number 9, where it says loss. It says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. You said in verse number 9, that word loss has the same idea as when a storm would come and, and a ship would either lose all of its cargo or even lives at sea. It would be described as loss, 
right? It's, it's the same word. And, and he says, you had this godly grief so that you suffered no loss. It, it wasn't bad for you that you've had this sense of grief and of guilt. Instead of suffering loss, it was actually good for you because it led you into repentance. And again, repentance is a higher priority than never feeling bad. Okay? There's something that is of higher importance in Paul's mind than just the Corinthians never feeling grief or never feeling sadness. It's that he wants them to come to repentance. Because right? repentance is a higher good than your sense of emotionally feeling fine. Okay? Guilt is good uh, in the sense that it brings comfort to those who love us in our godly grief. Guilt is good because godly grief brings repentance. Notice thirdly that guilt is good because godly grief brings salvation Instead of death. Look at verse number 10. It says in verse number 10, For godly grief, and again, I, I've used the word guilt because I think that concept of just this grief, this sadness, this I've messed up, we use that word guilt to describe all of that sensation of I feel bad, I feel sad. Um, this godly grief, he says, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He says a godly kind of grief produces this repentance. And what does repentance lead to? What does true repentance bring us? He says true repentance leads us to salvation without regret. Right? It's interesting. That word salvation, um, it could be the ultimate sense of saved from our sins and, and we're saved and, and, and we're with God. But it could also contain the idea of, of that ongoing spiritual experience of being um, saved from our sin, growing in Christ, that the ongoing part of our salvation right? Um, and, and so godly grief produces this repentance that leads us to that kind of salvation, that the kind of salvation that we continue to grow in godliness until that day when we have our final and full salvation at the end, right? And godly grief can, can produce the repentance that leads to that, that end goal of, of salvation, and, and that salvation that we can experience both in the here and the now and, and in later, um, hey, that repentance leads to salvation that we don't need to regret, Right? Uh, and he keeps using some of these same words for regret and guilt and sorrow. Um, and so he's overlapping a lot of words. And, and he, it's almost like, um, it's not quite a pun, but it's close to that. Because he says, you, you feel regret that you don't need to feel regret for. Do, do you see how he's saying that in this verse? You, you feel bad for something that you never need to feel bad for. Because you feel the sense of, of guilt and, and, and of, of grief. But what it leads to is repentance. And that repentance will lead you to salvation. And you never for a moment need to feel bad about your final and full salvation. Right? That's something that we love and cherish and we value. The fact that we can be finally and fully free from our sin. And with Christ forever. And there's not a trace of guilt or sadness in that experience. That will be pure, unending, eternal joy that we have because we have our final and full salvation, right? There's nothing to regret in that. Look, even in the good things we do, um, because our world is so broken, because we are so broken, there is this element where, where guilt and regret can tinge everything in our lives, right? Even the best things in our lives, so we are so thankful and we're so joyful. If you, um, if you get to be married and you say, I'm so happy that I get to be married and I love, I love my spouse and it's this experience of this is so wonderful. And then inevitably in that most precious, um, that most precious uh, thing that you have in your love with your spouse, what happens? You end up saying something that you wish you hadn't said or you do something you had, and guilt now creeps into that relationship, right? 
uh, or, or it happens at your workplace, and you actually do normally like your coworkers, and then all of a sudden, uh, you got angry at them, or they got angry at you, and now guilt creeps into, now I have this broken relationship, or somebody's upset at me. We have all of these earthly relationships that guilt can creep into. There is a day coming, beloved, when we will experience complete and final freedom from any and all sense of guilt and grief from wrongdoing. We will know finally what it is like to be free of both the, the, the power of sin and we will know what it is like to be free of the presence of sin. Can you imagine the joy of living day after day in eternity with our Christ in perfect communion with everyone around us and never ever having to feel a, a, just a hint or even a shred of guilt or grief for the things we have said or done? That is part of what makes heaven, our eternity, so sweet to look forward to. It's an eternity of glorifying God um, actively without this, the presence and this constraint of the guilt that dogs so many of our earthly relationships and so much of our day-to-day. That's a salvation without regret. That's what I'm trying to say, right? That's an eternity for us to long for and enjoy. And a way to get to that eternity is to be willing to let guilt drive us to repentance and away from our sin and to Christ in the here and now. Because the people that don't get to experience an eternity free of guilt are the people that refuse to believe in Jesus. And instead of living free of guilt for eternity, they live in eternal conscious torment, always knowing that what they have done with their life, their behaviors, and their refusal to believe in Jesus, they will live in constant, unending guilt and grief for the sin that they have done in this life. And that is part of the horror of hell. Never a moment of freedom from the, from the guilt and the accusation that says, you are wrong, and you have wronged the holy God, and they live in that state forever. That is a horrific end. And you do not need to go to that horrific end because you can turn away from your sin and you can turn to Christ and he will forgive you and he will cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. He will declare you holy. In fact, it is the only way to avoid that eternal conscious torment. Christ is your only hope for salvation. And so it is good for us to feel the weight, the pain, the sadness of our sin when that sadness turns us to Christ and away from our sin, because that will bring us salvation instead of death. Notice he says this leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is this worldly sense of guilt, right? There there is a sense of sorrow that actually leads to death instead of life. What what are we talking about when we talk about like a a worldly guilt or a worldly grief? I think part of what we're talking about um, is is a kind of guilt that you cannot shake. It, It never goes away. It seems like it doesn't matter how many times you pray, no matter how many good works you do to try to atone for the bad works that you did, the sense of guilt you cannot shake. It will not go away. And that's a worldly guilt that will lead to death. If that's all you do is go from day to day feeling the sense of guilt that never goes away, the end of that is going to be death and not life. Worldly guilt is a kind of guilt that doesn't lead you to repentance. The guilt that just says, You're wrong, you're wrong, you're guilty, you're guilty. And it never leads you to a change of life. That is a a worldly kind of guilt and grief that will only lead you to death. Because the reality, beloved, is that although I've said that guilt is good, guilt has shortcomings. Because guilt can only tell you the bad news, it can't tell you the good. 
If your guilt doesn't lead you to the good news, you will only ever be hearing the voice of judgment and condemnation. It's as if you're stuck in pain mode, your hands just stuck on the stove going, ouch, 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 and yet you never turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. Our, a worldly grief leads people to be sad that they were caught. That's a kind of worldly grief that doesn't lead to life. Instead, it leads to death. If, if your guilt is just, oh man, I got busted, and that's what you feel sad about, that's not the kind of guilt, that's not the kind of grief, that, that's not repentance. All right? If you just dislike the consequences you're receiving because of your actions, that's a worldly kind of grief. Oh man, I, I just don't like the repercussions of what I did. No, but, but are you grieved about what you did? Well, I just don't like it. Now I lost whatever, this respect in the, with the people around me. Um, I, I lost this job opportunity. I, I lost this. My, my wife is mad at me now. Or, I mean, whatever consequences you got, is, are you more upset about the consequences or the fact that you wronged God or someone around you? That's a worldly kind of guilt that you're not going to be able to shake until you turn away from your sin and you turn to Christ. Um, I want to do a, a really quick case study um, just so you see this um, play out in, in two people's lives over in Matthew 26. Right, so real quick, I think Matthew 26 helps us see the contrast between a godly grief that leads to repentance and what a worldly grief looks like. And the two people in question in Matthew 26, the two people in our case study, are Peter and Judas. Right, Peter and Judas. Uh, Matthew 26, uh, verse number 20. We're getting really close to the crucifixion of our Lord in, in Matthew 26. Um, in verse number 20, it, it describes that it's evening. He's reclining at table with the 12. And, and he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Can, I still can't. This is one of those moments in my Bibles that I still can't quite comprehend. Can you put yourself in their, in their sandals? Um, one of you is going to betray me. I, like, can you imagine Jesus saying that? And it's the 12. Like, you've been with Jesus for these three years. You've followed him. You've done miracles. And you've seen the other guy do a miracle. And, and, you, and he says, one of you going to betray me? Like, the shock in that room must have been so great. Uh, and, and what happens, uh, it says that they were very sorrowful. You see that sense of, there's that sense of guilt or of sorrow. Like, oh, that's terrible. That, that's that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Oh, no, this isn't good. Uh, and they all began to say, is it I? Is it, is it I? Who, who's going to do it? Right? They all have this sense of, man, I, I hope it's not me. Right? You, you continue on in, in the story. You can um, flip forward to verse number 69, uh, still of Matthew 26. Um, and, and when we get to, to Matthew 26, uh, six, actually, let's stop at um, 30 um, before we get all the way up to there. Uh, look in verse number 30. Um, they sung a hymn. Uh, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away uh, because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. All right, he says, You're all going to fall away. And then, of course, in, in comes Peter, our, our favorite, because he's like us, and uh, yeah, unlike us in so many ways. He sticks his foot right in his mouth, where it often is. And, and he says, Even though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Okay, only problem is Jesus just said, you're all going to fall away. And Peter says, that might be true about them, but it's not true of me. I will not fall away. All right, and we know this about Peter, but the reason we're talking about it in this case study is notice what Matthew finishes verse 35 with. What does it say at the end of 35? All of the disciples said the same. All right, so we're we're busy blaming Peter for all of these outrageous statements, but all of them say, 
oh, no, we're not going to fall away, right? So you have all these disciples that they feel bad when Jesus says you're going to betray. You have all these disciples that say, oh, no, we're not going to fall, not us. We, we would never do that. Then here comes Peter again in verse 69. He's sitting outside the courtyard. He has already um, made some betrayals. Servant girl comes to him, and he says, you're with Jesus, the Galilean, and he denies it. Servant girl comes back, and he says, he uses Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I do not know the man. Um, finally, the third time, and you know the story, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. He invokes a curse on himself, and he swears, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And what does Peter do at the end of chapter 26? He went out, and he wept bitterly. Peter is overcome with this sense of guilt and of sorrow for the sin that he has done. He has just betrayed his Lord, like his Lord had warned him he was going to, like he had told him he was, and yet the one that Peter had given up his entire life for, he had said goodbye to his business, he had said goodbye to his family, he had given up everything to follow Jesus, and in the moment of the most intense time, he told Jesus, I don't know you, I don't know the man, I will curse and swear I don't know him, I'm not a part of him. He betrays Jesus, and his sensation is one of this deep guilt and this bitter weeping. The reason I say this is a good case study is because all you have to do is to move into Matthew 27, and you'll see someone else respond strongly, with a very visceral response. Because you do move into chapter 27, and in verse number 3, who do we see? We see Judas, his betrayer. Okay? Judas is not the only betrayer of Jesus. Peter just betrayed him. Now we see Judas, the betrayer. And he saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Okay, you have two men, both disciples of Jesus. You have both of them betray Jesus. You have both of them respond with a super strong emotional reaction. Peter is weeping bitterly. Judas is so... Um, emotionally distraught and everything else that he goes out and he kills himself. Okay? What's the difference? Because we need to think about this if we're going to understand the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. What made Peter's a godly grief and what made Judas's a worldly grief? Because Jesus is explicitly clear in John 12 that he kept all who were his minus the son of perdition who was lost. Right? Judas, Judas is, there's no question about Judas's eternal state, according to Jesus, right? Judas is lost in hell forever. What makes the difference between him and Peter? Both of them have a really strong reaction. Both, both of them react strongly. And yet Peter's is a godly grief because what Peter's grief leads him to do is what, is what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. It has led him to repentance. It led him to turn away from his sin and to Christ. Judas certainly has a strong emotional reaction, and yet what he turns to is not to Christ and away from sin. He turns to more sin, right? Uh, we need to be very clear. Suicide is sin, right? And that's what Judas is choosing. He, he's not choosing to turn to Christ. He's choosing to turn away from the principles of God and of Christ. He's choosing to go and commit more sin. That's not Peter. Peter weeps, we, he weeps bitterly, but he comes back to Christ. 
He turns away from his betrayal. And you all know the wonderful story of reconciliation when Jesus comes to him. And just like Peter denied Jesus three times, he affirms three times, you know I love you, you know I love you, you know I love you. And that at the heart is the difference between a worldly grief and a godly grief. Worldly grief just leads to death. It leads to, I don't like the consequences of my action. It might lead to a strong reaction, but it doesn't lead to repentance away from sin and to God. Okay? That's uh, our final point uh, today is that guilt is good because godly grief brings the fruit of repentance. What does it look like for the Corinthians? We're back in 2 Corinthians 7 now. What it looked like for the Corinthians is this godly grief, this guilt that led them to repentance, it led to real fruit. He says in verse number 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. He's stacking up all of these words, and all these words are just fruit that the Corinthians really were turning away from sin and to Christ. Okay? Um, their sorrow was real. Paul's rebuke hurt them. And it hit home because it was true. But the Corinthian response determined that this would be a good hurt and not a, and not a bad hurt. Uh, just like Jesus said in Matthew 3.8 when he commanded, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the Corinthians bore fruit that was matching their repentance. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. There was this serious purpose. That's this idea of earnest. They were serious about what they were going to do. They, they were earnest. This godly grief produced this earnestness, but also there was eagerness to clear yourselves. They wanted to be free of the sin. They wanted to be in the clear. And as I've even used terms like guilt, you know what it is when you're in guilt to say, I want to be free of this guilt. I want to be free of this sadness that's burning my mind and my emotions. I want free of this. And the Corinthians felt that, and so it led them to a true repentance. Because, beloved, that's what this sensation of guilt and sorrow over sin is supposed to do. Right? It doesn't just hurt you for no reason. It leads you to repent and to come back to Christ. Okay? So he says you had eagerness to clear yourselves. It says they had indignation. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. It has the idea of this profound displeasure. They, they were upset, and they were upset at their sin and at themselves. It says what fear. It's the sense of alarm. Right? We have really, really messed up. We're in, this is really bad. That's the sensation that they had. It says what longing. They had this longing to be made right. You see the fruit that comes with repentance? I, I want to be made right. I want to return to Christ. I, I want to be free of, of my sin. That is fruit that, that is flowing out of repentance. And there's an eagerness to it. The Corinthians weren't going, oh, yeah, when we get around to it, we'll get around to confessing our sin. And, yeah, there was that guy that was fighting the Apostle Paul, but we're just letting him in the church. It's no big deal. No, they were saying this is a major deal. We've got to get away from our sin, and they're eager about it. Hey, is, it, is, that what, is that what you look like when you realize that you have sinned against God? When you have that sense of guilt, do you look like you are eager to get back to him? Are, are you in a rush to say, I want to be forgiven, and I want to be clear? Right? Uh, you've heard that expression before, keeping short accounts with God. Does that describe you, that you have this sense? Because if, if your guilt uh, is godly grief, then what it will bring is the fruit that comes from repentance, like this kind of zeal and longing uh, to, be, to be free of your sin. It led them, it even says, to what punishment? Um, that's because the church needed to punish this teacher who was within their church um, that was speaking against Paul and against the truth. So they were taking active steps. They didn't just put up with the guy that was opposing Paul. They took the, right, the, the steps to make it right, even to enforce justice. Um, we find out in Corinthians that they actually had gone almost too far in punishing this guy. 
They punished him so severely that it was like he wasn't even a believer. And, they, and Paul basically had to tell them, hey, you, like, you need to let him. Like, the point was for him to turn from his sin, not for you to just ostracize him. Uh, and so Paul had to almost like rein them back in. But that's how eager they were to turn away from their sin and deal with the situation. They brought this punishment to bear um, as, as a church community. And now they were put in the right. It says, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Okay? That, that can't mean that they were innocent from the start, right? It doesn't say they were never guilty of what they had done, right? They clearly were guilty because Paul had already written them severe letters. He, he had already chastised them. They clearly were doing wrong. But the point of verse number 11 is that, is that now they have gone to the point where now they are free from their guilt in sinning against God. Why? Because they turned away from that. And now they were forgiven, right? They turned away from their sin, and they had, they had turned to Christ, and so now they were innocent. What a sweet way of describing what happens when we truly repent. We turn away from our sin, and now that sin is dealt with, and it's gone. What a great freedom that comes to us when we respond rightly to our sense of sadness at our sin. As we return to a right relationship with God, and we're aware of the fact that we are positionally righteous before him. There is a, there is a right response um, that we should have to guilt. There should be fruit that comes from our sense of guilt. You can ask yourself, when, when you feel that sensation, however you would define it, however you would feel it, um, this, this response of guilt, you should ask yourself, where is this guilt coming from? What is its source? You can ask yourself things like, what, I ha- what have I done that is making me feel guilty? What exactly am I feeling guilty about, right? We can say guilt and it can be this really nebulous concept, like uh, I just feel blah, right? But I think what we need to do, if we're actually going to turn away from sin and turn to Christ, is to identify what exactly am I feeling guilty about? When, when did this guilt really start? Because the only way to, to rightly respond to guilt is not to just continue to live in it, but it's to say, how is this pushing me away from sin and getting me back to Christ? You can ask God to show you where you should repent, Thirdly, you can believe the gospel. You can believe the gospel. If you have a sense of guilt and you ask where you should repent and you see it and you turn back to Christ, it's at that moment that you again need to believe the gospel that you are forgiven in Christ. Your sin has been cleared. It's done. It's put away. And if your sin has been put away, then your guilt is also put away. You don't need a low-terrain awareness system when you're back up in the clouds where that plane's supposed to be, right? You don't have to continue the sense of guilt once you, have, once you are forgiven and you realize that, okay? So we need to let guilt drive us away from sin and to Christ. I want to give you some, some verses of hope uh, even as we come to our conclusion today. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on in verse 20 to say, The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, the, the reason you don't have to live in any kind of perpetual guilt or that guilt doesn't have to be a bad thing is because of the good news about Jesus. Because you can be forgiven. You can be free of your sin. Not because of the works that you have done, because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. That's good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. Listen, you can, you can feel guilt in a sense from your own conscience that God has given us. You can feel guilt directly from the Holy Spirit. But are you feeling guilt? Does even talking about it today make you feel a sense of guilt? Now, I want to be careful here because our feelings don't determine or create truth. You, you can actually feel guilty about something that isn't sin. You realize that, right? You can be wrongly informed. And you can feel bad about something that isn't sin. On the other hand, you cannot feel guilty about something that really is sin. You should feel bad about it, and, and you're not. The fact that you don't feel something doesn't change the reality. So what we need is renewed minds and God's word to tell us what is true or not, and then we tell our feelings to then get in line. But when you do have this sensation of guilt, it's God's word that needs to dictate what is this guilt from and what is it leading me to. So far from being a downer, what I'm hoping is this message will give you hope. It is good news to know that you can turn to a God who forgives. You don't have to stay stuck in your sin. You don't have to stay stuck in that uh, moment because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you are free from, from the condemnation of sin. So turn to him and not away from him. Okay? As we conclude, if, if your low-altitude warning goes off all the time, if you're under a perpetual sense of guilt, you'll start to ignore it. And maybe you're one of those Christians that is just always super sensitive and guilt just wears you down on a daily basis. I want you to hear today that it's not supposed to be that way. That, that's not how you're supposed to live. Guilt is supposed to drive you to repentance and to Christ, not to a sense of perpetual guilt, right? Guilt is a temporary sensation pointing you to Christ. There's a God who forgives, so turn to him. On the other hand, if your low altitude warner never goes off, uh, you'll have a different problem. There are times when you ought to be feeling sorrow and regret of sinning against a holy God and betraying the Christ you love and walking out of step with the gospel. And so what you ought to do when you have that sensation of guilt is turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. And you need to know that Jesus ready stands to save you, full of mercy, love, and power.